Scripture, scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And when he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For, be, for before the days of Thutis rose up, claiming to, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from, the ho- from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's nice to be with you this morning. Let's pray briefly. Heavenly Father, now uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to uh, study your word, to learn from it. Be with us in your spirit and teach our hearts. Give us the wisdom that we need to go forward into life as those who have been loved and served by you, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for your servant heart to us. Be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're winding up our series... Uh, on the triumph of Jesus ministry. We've been going, we have about three sermons left in that, and um, we've been going through what it means 
to have triumph, what Jesus' triumph in ministry through rising from the dead and sending his spirit looks like in the life of his people. And uh, today we're going to look at this account. Next week they're going to be, uh, we're going to look at, Mike is going to take a look at um, the diaconate and the deacons, the first deacons in the office of service with you. And following that, Tuck will come and look at uh, Stephen and his eventual martyrdom and death because of his faith, because of his testimony to Christ. And right after the death of Stephen, an open persecution uh, broke out against the church. And so we're going to wind up the series right after the death of Stephen. But today, what I'd like to look at is that faith, there's a faith that flows from the message of life that is about what Jesus has done and who he is. There's a faith that flows from that message of life out into a balanced obedience. So the gospel works itself out into our lives. It's not just information that we know. It's not just something that impacts our heart, comes down from our mind and and becomes explosively true in our innermost being, but it then goes out into our lives and affects the way that we live in every aspect. The things we fight, the things we align with, the things that we hope for. And we're going to look briefly today at the gift, the message, and the response. The gift, the message, and the response. First, the gift. Verse 32, we find this. We were witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, what is being said here is that you are connected to God's great redemptive story. You're connected by the work of Jesus and what he's done, and by him sending his spirit. You're connected to the work that he's done. You're connected to that redemptive story, the unfolding throughout this book of the way that God has redemptively dealt with his people. He connects you into that story. It's because of the work that God gives you the gift of the spirit. It's because of that work that Jesus does that God gives you the gift of his spirit. It's a gift. And the thing about gifts are is that you receive them based on their value. If somebody buys you a $5 Starbucks card, which is a no-no here anyway, uh, and presents you with that gift because of all the pour-over coffee, come on, coffee connoisseurs, uh, and gives you that $5 Starbucks gift card, you say thank you. You're, you're happy for the courtesy extended to you, but it's not worth a ton to you. It's not worth a lot to you. So you receive the gift based upon what it's worth. If you owe $500,000 in back taxes and you don't have a way to pay it, and somebody sees that and writes a check and sends it to the IRS so that you're free and clear, the worth of that gift is much more powerful to you And so in the same way, you're connected to God's great redemptive story because he gives you a gift. He gives you the gift of his spirit. It's not that God fits into your story. He's not the person who comes along and acts as your assistant. He doesn't keep in line with your agenda for him. He doesn't come when he's called. It's not a light switch that you turn on. He's the holy, majestic God of all things. And you come when you're called. And he called you, and he gave you a gift of his presence, of his spirit. He's written you into his story. It's not that 
God fits into your story. It's that he's written you into his story. And he's given you hope. And he's given you a peace. And he's given you a destination. And he's given you the means by to know wisely how you ought to live. How you ought to love one another. How you ought to love him. What it looks like to live in this city as his followers. He's written you into his story. And what does that mean for yours? Those are things you need to prayerfully consider together. We need to consider them together. Now, in the passage, we see a contrast of what being a gift, given a gift looks like. We see the contrast. In verse 17, we see that the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They were filled with it. Now, we don't have it printed here, but last week, the end of our passage that we looked at, we saw that the people were holding the early church in very high esteem. Very high esteem. And more than ever, believers, men and women, were added to their number. They were believing the good news. They were receiving the gift from God. And not only that, to attest to the truth of the message, the apostles, as they preached, were able to heal not only sickness but uh, demonic oppression. The text says that both sickness and demonization were healed. So there's power. And the Sadducees were jealous of that. Why? Because of the Senate of Israel, which were made up of various constituent parts, the Pharisees among them, the Sadducees were the most embedded politically. They stood the most to lose if the power went away from them. And so the opposition to this gift and the outworking of it stems primarily from the Sadducees. They were filled with jealousy. Now, the problem with wanting a claim, we talked about obsession last week and the idea of wanting a claim and and the danger of that, is that it will fail you. It breaks down. You break down. It won't last. It promises hope that you grab for, but it fizzles out. I was reading uh, an article, a recent article, by Michael Reinrib, and he considers why Tiger Woods stopped playing before the game was finished just recently. His Achilles tendon was hurting, and he, he, was, he stopped playing the game. He was you know, several strokes behind, about eight strokes behind, and he actually just got in his car and left. And he was trying to figure that out. He was writing about, what does that, what does that mean? And he looks back to an earlier article that describes the emptiness of being held in high esteem. Just below below the applause, or within it, you can hear the grinding. That's the relentless chewing mechanism of fame, girding to grind the purity and promise to dust. He quoted an earlier article. almost prophetic word from a Sports Illustrated article, thinking about what it means to come up in the light line, to be held in such high esteem, and to be lured in by it, because it will grind you up and spit you out. Also, present, when you're trying to get acclaim from what other people think of you, when you're trying to base your identity off of esteem of others, you're trying to do it through your effort. 
You're trying to present something that you've done that brings esteem from others so that you're okay. And that's not how the gospel works. Remember, it's a gift. It's a gift here. The Holy Spirit is a gift. It's not our own effort. I've talked with some of you, and I've talked with many people over the years. And one of the key problems to our spirituality, one of the key problems to living out of faith, of the gospel, of the triumph of Jesus' ministry, is that we begin with ourselves as the primary doer. We don't begin with Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf. We don't begin with the gift that we've been given. And so we're filled with other things. We take other things that are good in life, relationships and romance and job and career and money and security and freedom and identity and coolness and hipsterishness. Is that a word? You first learned it here. It's a new word. Hipsterishness. Anyway, the problem with those things is that they will grind you over time. They will not provide the thing that you're most searching for in them. They will not provide you with an identity. And so we see some of the things that happen when, when people without the gift are being ground. One of the things we see is verse 26, they were afraid. Now the thing is, is that God is capable of overcoming your plans. No matter how good and how tight you think they are, he's, he's capable of overcoming them. He works to his own accord. He works to his own plan, his own glory. And the highest priority without God as your first priority is based on fear. Why? Because you can lose it and you know it. A lot of you are pursuing relationships right now. And you look good. And you think that if you look good enough or if you give in just enough, that'll be enough. That'll get you the relationship. But how does that account for the way your body will break down in the next 20 years, next 30 years? Does your plan include that? You're not taking the full picture into account. And because there are things that can threaten the stuff that you hope in, there's a tremendous fear. The highest priority without God is your first priority is based on fear. And you'll notice, too, that they were perplexed without the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were perplexed, verse 24. Because of unbelief, there's no basis for understanding the purpose, motive, and standard for the unfolding of God's plan. Now, last week I spoke to women. This week I'd like to speak to you guys who are not married. What is the difficulty with making a commitment in relationship. Let's parse it out. What's the purpose for pursuing a relationship? One of the things we're told here, and in other places in the Bible, is the purpose for doing anything, including pursuit of relationship, is to glorify God. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You remember? Is that what you thought of? when you thought of your purpose for entering into a relationship? What's the motive for entering into a relationship? Single guys. What's the motive for saying, yes, let's pursue a relationship? Is it a heart renewed by the Holy Spirit, by faith in the gospel? Is there some other motive driving you that you've taken along with you in life? 
that prevents you from committing the way you ought. Because that motive can be undone. That motive can be threatened. And what standard of authority are you, are you deciding whether or not to commit in a relationship? What standard of authority are you using? Is it God's word? Is it the message of life that the apostles preached? Is that your guide? Is that your authority? Is that your standard to which you appeal to make your decisions about whether or not you'll commit? Now, I know some of you, but I've known many people well enough to know that the purpose and motive and standard for why you do the things you do, and guys, for a moment, continue to pick on you, for why you don't enter into a relationship and commit the way that you ought to, it's because your purpose, motive, and standard are out of, out of whack. They're skewed. They're based and start with your effort. And they don't begin with Jesus' effort. They don't begin with a gift. Because his promise to love you is not based upon what you give to him. But it's a promise that he'll be there always. Nothing can take it away from you. Nothing in heaven and earth. He will be faithful to you. He promises to be there. Even when you're unlovely. And you begin to start to see that the grandeur with which we are to enter a relationship with one another is much more than we can bear and it's much more than we conceive of. But it's something that the gospel and the freedom that the gospel and the Holy Spirit brings makes possible. When you are thinking about a relationship, you're not saying, guys, I love you a lot right now. When you're thinking about a relationship and commitment, what you're thinking about doing is promising to be loving even when you don't feel like it 50 years from now because it's modeled in the kinds of love that God shows us. Why can't you make that kind of commitment? Because your triangle, your purpose, motive, and standard are based on things that can fail you and you're afraid. And it's okay to admit that you're afraid. But we need to admit it. We need to talk about it. We need to bring the gospel to bear. All right. I'm going to ease up on the guys. They're perplexed without the gift, 24, because of the unbelief. There's no basis for understanding the purpose, motive, or standard for the unfolding of God's plan. Seek the gift. Ask God for the gift. If you haven't received it, ask him for his spirit. Ask him for the illumining of your mind. Ask him to shed light on who he is and what he's done and what that means to you and what that means to how you live. Think and consider for just a moment that this message of life that is in our passage is the very thing that you've been longing for in every relationship, in every career change, in everything that you've been striving for. Perhaps, just perhaps, consider that this is it. That relationship with Jesus and his spirit is it. So, we have the gift. But the second is the message. Verse 19, 20, and 21 says this, But during that night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So, there's content. We've talked about this before. Christianity is not just a feeling. There's content to the message. It's a message of life. It is a feeling. It is something that radically transforms who we are. 
But the message, verse 31, is that Jesus is the exalted Lord. And he's the exalted Lord in order to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So we're seeing some of the redemptive story here. Up to this point, the church were considered by the Pharisees to be within the bounds of Judaism. Have you thought about that? The apostles and their followers, up to this point, aside from the Sadducees really not liking anything that they were about, according to the Pharisees, were within the bounds of Judaism. Why? Well, there are other messianic movements at the time. And so the Pharisees were like, okay, Christians, you know, it's, it's okay. I understand your messianic zeal. You're still within Israel. You, know, you, still, you still appeal to the law. Many people were trying to live according to the law of Moses and figure out what that meant to faith. We, we wish that you thought like we did, the Pharisees would say. But you don't, and so we'll work it out through our normal means, through a normal sen- you know, sentence, senate. So moderation was their chosen, chosen approach, and it was not heretical, as we've already talked about. Jesus' Messiahship in this time with these Jews believing that Jesus was the Messiah uh, was about proclaiming his Messiahship, that he was, in fact, the Hebrew Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, that he was Lord. The Messiah was to reign. We talked about that early on. The Messiah was to reign and rule as God's representative on earth. We see that early on in Genesis. The human beings are to rule and reign in God's name, in God's image. That we're be to be vice regents of his authority, of his power, of his grace, of his peace, of his relationship and communion. The disciples and apostles put a particular emphasis on the heaven-ordained death of Jesus. They looked endlessly at Scripture and proved from Scripture how this had to happen. Jesus himself, when he was here, said this has to happen. It was heaven-ordained. He had a victorious resurrection. And his present status is the, as the exalted Redeemer. He's the one, Israel. He's the one that we've been searching for. He's the one who brings this redemptive story to a close. It's surprising. We didn't expect it, but here it is. This poor man from Nazareth is the one. Now, Tuck will teach in two weeks more about this. Between uh, Gamaliel's advice and Saul's actions, Saul being eventually the Apostle Paul, there arose within Christian preaching something that could be only viewed by Jewish leaders, only viewed as a real threat of Jewish apostasy. You'll see that in Acts 6 and 7. Stephen is portrayed as beginning to apply the doctrines of Jesus' Messiahship and Lordship. Okay, within Judaism at this point, maybe a a faction, but it's within the bounds of what we can accept, the Pharisees would say. Stephen began to apply Jesus' Messiahship and Lordship to the traditional Jewish views regarding land and law and temple. Moreover, he's seen as beginning to reach conclusions that related to the primacy of Jesus' Messiahship and Lordship and the secondary nature the secondary nature of Jewish views about the land, the law, and the temple. The the Pharisees were trying for moderation here, but the problem is that the gospel forces our hand. We see violence. They were filled with rage. They wanted to kill them, the Sadducees. Violence in the Sadducees. 
The message of the gospel forces their hand, and they pour it out in rage. The Pharisees try for moderation, and we see it here in this passage. They do treat it with moderation, but it doesn't last. The gospel affects a forcing of our hand. It won't leave us the same. Hosea 10.12 says this. It's a famous passage in the book of Hosea, an older prophet before the time of Jesus. And Hosea was told to go and take a wife who would not be faithful and marry her. And she's not going to be faithful. And she's going to have children that are not your own. And you still love her. And that is meant to prophesy against God's people for their unfaithfulness in their relationship with him. And there's an amazing place in 10.12 where Hosea, the Lord writes through Hosea, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground. For it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness upon you. I believe that Hosea was looking then at the gift of the gospel. In Romans 1.17, righteousness from God appears. It's revealed. It's given to us. It's rained down upon us, like Hosea said it would be. And there's a need for repentance. There's a need for breaking up the areas of our life where the gospel hasn't penetrated. What are the areas in your life where you're still taking identity and meaning and security and significance from. And you're trying to live with hope towards those things, but those things can be threatened, and so you're on shaky ground every day. Break up your unplowed ground. When you sow for yourselves righteousness and reap the fruit of unfailing love, it can't be your righteousness that you're sowing. Sowing and reaping are connected, right? So when you put into the ground something that is righteous and what comes up is unfailing love, you know that your love fails. But Jesus' love doesn't. And so a righteousness from God is revealed from first to last. The gospel forces our hand. It's a gift and it forces our hand. The message is that we, too, are witnesses of this message of life. The Holy Spirit takes his presence in our life that we can sense at times. He takes his presence and he witnesses to the truth of the message of life. And that's for ourselves, for our own building up, but it's also so that we can bear witness to it to others, just like the apostles did. There's a message about Jesus, a righteousness from God, and repentance. God himself wanted the apostles to have a dogged steadfastness when they taught about that life that is in Jesus in the face of the results of the Sadducees' full jealousy. The Sadducees were jealous. They were coming after them. And so the word stand, the way that it's used, the grammar that surrounds it, very beginning of the passage, go stand in the temple, verse 20, and speak to the people all the words of this life. It means a dogged steadfastness in teaching and preaching, proclaiming what the Lord had done, that he had given this gift, that repentance is possible, that they could have life. Now, one question that we should ask is what about the deliverance shown? 
you know, they're put in prison, and the Lord himself comes and releases them and says, go, go preach, teach the message of this life in the temple. And they, got, they went right to it. Sunrise, there they are in the temple, teaching the message, preaching it. It's important, though, that we, we not limit the Lord. He can do what he wants. He works against his created order and nature as he sees fit. There's ordinary and extraordinary. I don't like miraculous and non-miraculous. It's ordinary and extraordinary ways that the Lord works. For example, we've, and we've talked about this once before, the Lord in his creation created physics, right? And so we have, as a part of that, the second law of thermodynamics, right? And that's the thing that everything entropies. Everything breaks down. God saw fit to work against that natural law when he rose Jesus from the dead. He gave his body that was dead life again. And he's working against and reversing that natural law where all things will be made new. And they'll have an eternal, permanent nature, not temporary and provisional anymore. But this kind of miraculous deliverance doesn't always happen in our lives. What we learn from this passage is that God can deliver us if he wishes. If he wishes. Our task is to obey his call. That is what we must concentrate on and leave the rest in God's hands. We see this throughout the scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego expressed this attitude with King Nebuchadnezzar, who threatened to throw them in the fiery furnace if they refused to obey them. He told them, Then what God will be able to rescue from my hand? And here's what they replied. The three men replied, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. But knowing that God may not do this, they added, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So miraculous deliverance or not, our primary responsibility is first obedience to the kind and lovely Savior who's wooed us, who's called us, who's given us this great gift. So we have the message, but we also have the response. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answers, We must obey God rather than men. Now what has happened here is the Gospels reordered the priorities of the apostles' lives. Some of you have grown up here. Some of you have strong political allegiances that you've grown up with. It's just the way that you've grown up. Others of you have gathered your political allegiances elsewhere. But here, their political allegiances are reordered. They're not done away with, but they're reordered. So there are other scriptural examples of what, and this is what we want to look at briefly because of our current time and day, um, with regulation against the homeless ministry. There are other scriptural examples of acceptable disobedience. In addition to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel refused to stop praying to Yahweh when it became illegal. You can read about that in Daniel 6. Yet the Bible does, not command, does command us to be subject to governing authorities. The Bible does command us to be subject to governing authorities. Now this is interesting. Peter's the one who's saying what? On behalf of the apostles. We must obey God rather than man. But Peter later writes this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 
This teaching is given in more detail in Romans 13 when Paul writes, Paul says the governing authorities have been established by God and we should therefore submit to them. And he specifically mentions the giving of taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. Even though Paul had suffered an unjust punishment from the state in Philippi, he sought to work within the structure of government there. What do we make of this? We must obey God rather than men, and yet you have the same men talking about submitting to the authorities. With reverence and respect, John's thought shows that Romans 13, the God-ordained purpose of the power, that is the government authorities, have been given is to promote good and punish evil. And so Stott asks, what shall we do then when they use it, that power that they have, to punish good and promote evil? And he argues that since the state's authority has been delegated to it by God, we are to submit to it right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve disobedience to God. One of the commentators that I was reading uh, on this passage of Acts that we're studying had done some study of his own through Christian authors of civil disobedience and what that would look like. So, A.J. Fernando quotes in his commentary another author on civil disobedience that gives us some guidelines that might be helpful to think through. I'm going to give them here just to stimulate thought and discussion as we move on through our current climate and current regulation in the city. Fernando writes, Some important criteria need to be followed in practicing any civil disobedience responsibly. There are two situations that might warrant civil disobedience. One, when believers are required to deny their faith in Christ or explicitly disown their Lord. And two, when the state has required Christians to take part in an action which is in clear conflict with their Christianity and Christianly informed conscience. He goes on to cite criteria that help us make a decision then. And I think these are helpful. All democratic and constitutional means must genuinely be exhausted. It is far preferable to persuade people by democratic, democratic argument. And he notes that that's what the great apologists in the early church did. Civil disobedience should be open and public. It's not necessary, perhaps, when it comes to verbal witness that could be done in private. But it should be submissive to arrest and punishment, ready to take responsibility for its illegal actions. It should strongly prefer nonviolent methods. Some would say that it must insist on nonviolence. Actions of civil disobedience should display a good knowledge of the law and a full respect for it. And civil disobedience should have a specific and realistic end in view. It should not be designed or even undertaken in ways that are politically counterproductive. So fundamentally, it remains only an extreme form of protest and persuasion. It's not to be used as a form of coercion. And I thought that was helpful because I think that one of the things that we see in Jesus is that he's winsome. He's winsome in the use of his authority. Sometimes he gets angry. Sometimes he uses power. But he does it with the, the benefit of those who he's talking to and dealing with in mind. Even those he disagrees with. Even those who aren't getting him. When we engage... If we engage, and remember we said that as a session we left to your conscience how to engage the regulation here in Philly. It needs to be with the knowledge that God calls for your obedience, but calls for it winsomely.
So in summary, first we covered the gift. Right? The key point is that God has given you the gift of his spirit if you believe in the gospel. And so thereby he gives you new life that you can share with others. But secondly, we covered the message. And the key point is that the power of Jesus' work liberates you and that forces your hand. It cannot leave you as you are. Christianity will make you either a far better person or a far worse person, but it won't leave you you. Jesus promised to make you like him. You can never say, oh, I'm just like that. Jesus came to make you like him, to complete the work that he's begun in you. But third, we cover the response. The key point is that our obedience to God flows out of our reordered priorities in the gospel. It changes everything about who we are, what we value, how we take action. The main idea that we're looking at is the Holy Spirit has been given to you if you believe in him. The Holy Spirit testifies to the message of life in your own heart. Because the Holy Spirit has been given to you, God calls you to obedience, and you can respond to that call. Why? Because Jesus was obedient to the letter, to the jot and tittle, and yet he was treated as one on the cross as being disobedient. He was hung on a tree. It's connected to a verse in Deuteronomy that says anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. What are our next steps? Friends, we need to obey God well. Whether anybody can see what we're doing or everyone can see what we're doing, whether nobody or everybody can see, we need to obey God well and with balance particularly as we engage in civil disobedience, if that's what the Lord calls us to do. But we also need to be rooted in the message of this life. That's what the text says. This life is what we're to be about. It's what the apostles were instructed to teach. It's what everyone was instructed to base their life on. It's this life that we live by. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gift. Thank you for your message. Thank you for the fact that we can respond out of gratitude and thankfulness to the grace that we've been shown. Would you be with us now as we go into our week, as we love you more, as we love one another in different ways, in varied ways, as we look for different ways to do that, and as we love our city well. Be with us, Lord. Make us strong in your gospel. Give us hope that is beautiful and everlasting, as you so want to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.